Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rososio and founder of Exaptic, a robotics company specializing in robots helping people. My guest today is Associate Professor Nicole Hartley. Nicole is a research academic with the University of Queensland Business School. Nicole's current research agenda focuses on exploring customer perceptions of the advent of technology and various forms of disruption in the delivery of services. Nicole, welcome, and so nice to have you on the show. Oh, Nikki, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. So, <laughs> so you've had a very interesting career. Tell us a bit <laughs> about your journey. It's not something that someone says to an academic, but <laughs> I guess I didn't start in academia. I didn't do the traditional kind of academic pathway, so maybe it's interesting. Um, yeah, I I started off and I, I did my undergraduate. I did a double degree undergraduate. I did that. I did marketing and, and consumer psychology, and then I just love traveling. My heart is in travel, so I, I took myself over, over to London, so maybe that's a little bit like a lot of people, um, but I moved over there and just loved it over there. And I ended up getting some marketing roles over there. I worked actually for Prudential Assurance on their um, Tour de France campaign. So we did, a, we did a lot of that kind of work over there. The one thing was that I never got to go to the Tour de France, which was a really bitterly disappointment. I was always the person in back in the office going, sure, I'll type up that thing for us or I'll send that thing off so that on the ground, everything is running smoothly. Um, so marketing's not as glamorous, and glamorous as they make it out to be, um, but, it, but amazing experiences over there. I think Right from the get-go, I really wanted to, I, I've always had this passion for understanding people. That's been my biggest thing. How do people make decisions? Um, what triggers some, someone to do something and someone to do something else? And so that consumer, understanding the consumer from a psychology perspective was always really important to me. And then I saw how advertising really fitted into that. So I had this dream of being this advertising executive. So I got offered this role in London as an advertising executive and I just... I had this moment very, very young on that I thought, oh no, I'm going to be dried up and shriveled very soon in this industry. And I don't want to feel like that at 20, at 23. So um, I'm going to not do that pathway. Um, I came back to Australia and I did um, some different marketing roles. This probably says how old I am, but I got one of the leading roles in a dot-com when the dot-coms were starting up. So um, yeah, got exposed to that online world and, and digital medias and how do digital platforms work? You know, we didn't know anything about this at all at that stage, you know, my parents were still faxing me over in London at the, at the time. Dad not knowing that, that, you know, the whole office can read your fax when he's sending me all these wonderful messages. Hello, darling. Hello, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I did that for a while. I And I then I kind of was, I landed in a job. I did, I did a marketing manager role for a large hospitality um, firm. And then I did a marketing role for an all-girls school. So it was kind of, I think that's an angle into education there. And I think I was back in um, Rockhampton at the time because I was back getting married and my ex-lecturer tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh, seeing you're here, there's this wonderful, and because you never came back and did your honours degree, um, there's this project that I'm working on. And it's, it's about psychology and service providers. And I really would love, you know, there's a part here that you could possibly play around emotional intelligence. It's this new thing that's really exciting. I thought, okay, so I, I dipped my toe in the water there and then that evolved into a PhD really quickly. And then I think when you're shuttered into a PhD, you just kind of just absorbed into this world of knowledge and academia just really gelled with me. Uh, you know, I think in academia, you can, you have the autonomy to choose where you want to, where you kind of want to um, explore further or expand knowledge. Um, and so that's been my trajectory ever since. So I moved to Sydney, did that, came back here into Brisbane 
Um, and I've just been, yeah, continuing that path from here on in. So, yeah. Listen, it's an amazing journey. Your teaching expertise now is in advertising, marketing strategy, digital media and consumer behavior, yeah. which in itself is a fascinating field. So first, my question is how are we been being manipulated? Because I'm sure <laughs> we are every day. It's so funny because when I'm at parties or anything, people say, what do you do? And I, I, I mix it up, you know, as everyone does when they go to parties. But I sometimes say I'm a consumer psychologist. And they're like, oh, God, are you, are you analyzing me right now? Like, like, or are you trying to manipulate me to change my behavior right about now? And I'm like, I could be and you would never know. Um, <laughs> so the perspectives that people have around it. Um, uh, I think, as I said, yeah, yeah. That, that's why what drew me into that field was really just understanding how and why we make decisions and as you said at the start with my bio I'm really interested now in how technology whether we use technology or not how we feel about using technology um and I but the thing that people don't understand I, it's interesting being a consumer and also being someone who understands the psychology of what marketers are involved in um, to help brands get traction in markets. You know, at the core of it, marketing is not evil. Marketing is not about manipulation. We do have triggers and ways in which we engage with audiences. It's funny though, because so much of marketing now is watching people's behavior. And we've got so many different ways now through all this technology and data to absorb how people behave like never before like so now we've got the ability to you know we can track people as they walk down the street if we wanted to if people are tapping into it they've got their mobile devices you know all these data point collections that are coming in that are enabling us to look at ways in which we can help people live better lives um you know do do the things that they want to do be exposed to things that they want to be exposed in but exposed to um and we can also help shape behaviors as well and, and that's usually for the good um mostly for the good and we can the more transparency we have at large organizations the more we're doing that but the, there is trigger points that we use in, in in marketing and i think that's a lot around um people's emotions so much of what we do as consumers is driven by our emotions and our previous experiences and our lifestyles and that's so 80 percent of our choices are driven based or are based on our emotions which is interesting as a human, you kind of go, no, no, I logically and rationally make all my choices and all my decisions. And yes, we do, but um, there's lots of studies. And I do a bit in this space around also how to um, atmospherics within service uh, areas influence how we purchase or how we shop or how we behave. And, you know, there's lots of studies that support the fact that, you know, when you play certain music or if you have a smell of bread or if you have, you know, temperature, uh, different temperatures, whether someone smiles at you, whether they don't, they, these are all little emotional triggers that can radically change the way that we behave. And I think so we, we you can use some of those um, to help shape behaviors, or it's really about understanding how they work and then sort of helping people make good decisions at the end of the day hopefully and not manipulating them too much so yeah so the the sweets at the counter when you're just about to check out with all these screaming kids and then the other one in real estate is when you're putting your house open for inspection put vanilla in the oven put the oven on so that the house smells nice <laughs> absolutely these are like our olfactory senses like our smell is the biggest trigger in how we behave as, as humans so it's amazing how still a lot of shops aren't making good use of that. I've done, I did a little bit of research lately, though, with a few banks actually in their bank branches. If you go into bank branches now, they look a lot like hotel lobbies because they're kind of like doing this jazz music in the background and they've got the light, the lighting right. 
and some of them are experimenting now with with scents and they have they've invested money in their own you know scents that make it smell familiar and make you happy and 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 feeling really comfortable in that space and I think that's what it is it's about making people feel comfortable that they're making good choices yeah I actually went into my bank uh, last year and I actually had like a um a hostess come to me and go you know what is what is your business need here tonight I went, oh I'm, I'm so important I think it was COVID and they were trying to space us out and uh, <laughs> I'm so cynical I go yeah 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 <laughs> let me tell you I, I have some issues that's why I'm here <laughs> anyway but I do I do think that is um you know, and I, I had someone come into my office wanting to do a project on having robots in, the, in a bank. And look, that's, yeah, like that's a whole different kettle of fish because I still think actually in a way people are the best at, you know, interacting with people. And if, if you actually need some help, you actually want to talk to a human being, especially in that sort of environment. Yeah, like that's, I think that's what I've been finding in some of the research <clears throat> and the research I read in this field predominantly around robotics, like you've just raised is with complaint management, it's really, it's at a time when someone's in a crisis point and they're very, very emotive. And what we don't have yet is robots that are very responsive to the range of emotions that, are, that humans have in when they're kind of going, well, this is not good enough. This is the 24th time that you have put this fee on my account and I just am not, not happy. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of complaint management really is about how you manage the emotions of that person. And then you can get down to the, you know, okay, well, this is now what we're going to do practically to, 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 you know, to fix your complaint. But yeah, I don't think robotics are great in that respect, probably great at absorbing information and, and categorizing that. Um, but yeah, the emotive aspect is just so powerful. Yeah, yeah I, I, I happen to agree with you. I don't think we're anywhere near where we think we should be with robotics in that, in yeah. that space. So as an academic, how did you become involved in robotics? Yeah, good question. And I think I often, there's often this kind of pause where I, I kind of sometimes say, oh, I'm interested in service robots. And they're like, oh, and people start talking to me about natural language processing and all of the robotics, you know, sort of as a, like I'm an IT expert. I honestly don't know a lot of that side of it. Um, and it's interesting when I say I'm in the business school, they're like, oh, well, do you sell robots then? I think there's just this big disconnect about what do business academics know or what, are, what is their interest in, in robotics? Uh, and I think it's it's just so broad. Like um, in my field, which is all about um, you know, serve, I, I'm a, actually a services marketing researcher. So I like looking at how people make decisions in service context because I think there's so much more dynamic than you just sort of going off and, and buying a car. Um, it's more, it, there's a lot more at play and, and intangible in a service environment. And there's a lot more opportunities for robotics in service encounters because we're seeing how robotics are supplementing or being used as frontline service providers in you know hotels, restaurants, um, retail environments, etc. Concierge robots that you see out there. Um, so to us, robotics is an extension of this human-to-human -human interface. And now we then had that sort of uh, human-mediated interface between human technology, human, where it was like we'll go online now and we'll order things, so I don't have to actually directly talk to a human to get the services I need. Um, and now robotics are playing another role where it's kind of like where technology and human are melding together and you've kind of, it's, it's whether we're ready as humans to accept a robot as a human in those environments um, and, you know, the role that they might play in those service environments. So I think that's where I came into um, under, a, a real keen interest in, in robotics is what role do they play in what we have always understood as a, as a very human to human interface or as 
a human to technology kind of interaction. And I'm really keenly interested in how those interactions play out with robots involved, yeah. Yeah, and I think the form factor of your robots, of course, are very important because, you know, like we, if we talk about a humanoid for our audience, like it's a robot that looks like a human, it's, it's got a face, it's got arms, it may have legs, you know, that you can see and, you know, people respond differently to a humanoid as to um, maybe like a Timmy that's got no, like it just looks like a little robot, you know, like the, the difference is there. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And um, we're just about to put out a paper where we're actually looking at how the different types of robots, we've done this big synthesis of all this data over the last 20 years of what we understand about service robots in particular. And what we're showing is that, yeah, depending on the type of robot and how um, anthropomorphized it is, and when I say that, it's like how more human-like is the robot, um, what, what kind of different perceptions uh, do, do uh, customers have? as well as also the people that work alongside um, robots. There's just so much to understand in, in that space. And maybe I'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, we are already seeing that, you know, the uncanny valley, which um, maybe people know about, but you know, the more human-like and a robot is, the more that we kind of get a little bit eerie, that we think it's a bit eerie and we get a little bit unnerved by it. And we do see that coming across with, the, with these highly, um, probably a little bit more advanced, but a lot more human, humanized robots um, where people who are typically looking at a robot, like it still has a machine look, but it has to have some features of a human for them to actually want to interact still in that human way. So eyes are a big part of robots in terms of if you've got eyes, if you've got a, a, a smile. Um, but, you know, there's, there's so, many, so much research that we're trying to do now because even little things like a, we had a robot here in the library that we were testing on and we put it out and it had a smile, like it just had a smile that never moved. And everyone said that was really freaky, that that robot smiles all the time. Why can't it just, like, it's actually freaking me out. And we thought that would be the best way to have the, the smile on the, the mouth. Um, but no, they just wanted a small little mouth, no smile, no nothing. Just uh, they were more important that the eyes were open and, and able to follow and engage all of these nuanced things that we're putting, we're running in experiments now to understand how people are responding in different ways, whether people are feeling comfortable, whether they want to interact, how will they interact? Will they want to give that robot all, all of the information that that robot needs to, to provide them with the service that they need? And it's so interesting that it's coming down to these little nuanced things of like whether you have a smiley face or a, you know, a little small face or whether they, you know, the types of language, the tone of their language and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I was listening to a talk of um, Sue Kay yesterday, and she mm -hmm. mentioned that um, the Boston Dynamics doll was in, in Australia, a company had bought it in, and just the mere putting eyes on its on its the front of it, because it's yeah. it's a rather mean-looking robot, yeah. um, ha has changed people's perceptions. And, um, you know, further to an uncanny valley effect, like Sophia is a, t is a classic example of people sort of the cringe, you know, they sort of go, ugh. And that poor robot, she's not looking very well. She's not aging well. No. <laughs> she looks a bit rough and rough and ready. So she's looking even a little bit more. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I, I did hear rumours that they were, or someone said that they're looking to really commercialise it at, at a great, um, you know, like vast numbers. I'm, you know, my philosophy with robotics is what problem are you solving? You know, like Absolutely. Yeah. This, what problem is Sophia solving, which to me is of great interest. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's lots of lovely Sophia interfaces that are avatars online that provide really good service in that space that look exactly like, like look robotic, look like a humanoid, but in that avatar space that do just the same amount of, you know, they give really good service. I'm not sure what the embodied format of Sophia actually adds at the moment, other than people's just peculiar curiosity around, oh, is this the ultimate thing where we get replaced by, by robots um, and you know that's one of the biggest stigmas as people in robotics in, in, which kind of fighting against is this whole premise of like we're not championing for robots replacing humans where we're championing for robots supplementing and augmenting what we do as humans and supporting us in all these different ways and I think if you go straight to Sophia it kind of is too confronting for people where they're going oh goodness if they can have her look so real and be interacting in that high intelligence space, um, yeah, that's it's really unnerving. So, in a way, we've got two um, two like groups of people in robotics. Like we've got um, serious AI roboticists that work in the space, and then we've got people like the, you that have got a different background, but you support the use of, of robotics. So, how can academics in Australia um, encourage the uptake of robotics? Because we know, like on a on a study of like thirty eight countries, Australia's thirty first out of it on in terms of what we're doing in in robotics. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I think collectively, I think there's something, I think we all play a role, quite honestly. Um, I think our role as academics is doing as much research around this as, as possible so we can alleviate some of those concerns that we see out there. Um, and I think what we have to move towards is our research providing a pull towards robotics rather than a push outwards. Like this, there's some wonderful robotics manufacturers, et cetera, and providers such as yourself out there. Um, and, and putting robots out there for really good causes. Um, but at the moment, it seems very like we're still trying to push this out there and people are, are you know, sort of going, well, I don't really understand the value. I don't understand how uh, I've got pushback across different levels in terms of my frontline workers or my backend workers, whoever's going to be working with these robotic robots. So I think our role in all of that is to provide the discourse or the information around, well, this is if you do this when you're embedding your robots into your organization, um, then this is when you're going to get the most amount of adoption and acceptance of, of people within your organization or your, your customers. Um, yeah, now here's some nuanced things that helps, you know, your customers interface better with your robots. Robots can't just be used for, for novelty's sake. They really have to serve a purpose and, that, and then they have to be implemented well. I think they're the two things. And I, I think that um, through the experiments that we do, the ways in which we're able to sort of even break down the key little things, as I was saying before, even the smile or no smile, um, that could really just make or break whether your robot is, is doing its job or not, um, then I think that's you know, that's our role to play is disseminating those findings through evidence-based research and not just people's assumptions about what they think people are going to think or feel or how they're going to react. So, yeah. You know, it's very interesting because I, I've got a rental component to my business and people often contact me and they want <clears throat> the robots that look friendly, but they aren't necessarily very useful robots. And I, and I try and steer them away from it and go, I go, look, this is a this is certainly like a good looking robot, but it's not terribly useful. Yeah. Rather get a robot that you know is going to work, but it looks like a robot. And that, that's in essence what it is. It's a robot. Yeah. Well, that, you know, first and foremost, if, if you're looking at robotics, it really has to be around what's the utilitarian function that this, this is going to serve within our organization. And sorry, I'm not really talking about the manufacturing robots because I don't know a lot about them. I'm in that service space. 
but even that service space, yes. Do you do you want to, do you want a robot for novelty value? You know, we've got robot restaurants in Japan. That's a novelty. You know, I don't think people that I know have gone there have said they they're very limited in what they can do. They're basically there for entertainment. Um, but if you want a robot in your restaurant that's going to serve people and be mobile in that space, carrying out things, um, you want it to be serving um, at the same level, if not better, than your than your human service. Yeah. Um, so it's got to have that functionality about it in order to actually do its job well. So because what you're trying to do there is free up space for those other, the the restaurant staff to go and do other, you know, things that you know the robots can't can't do, and it's maybe in the background. Yeah, it- yeah, exactly. So you're solving a problem so that humans can actually go and do something else. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. So you were part of the services workshop that you and I worked together on um, for the roadmap of uh, robotics for Australia 2020. Uh, what sector does the services uh, section focus on, and, and what was your takeaway? What was happening in um, in this section sector? Uh-huh. First of all, I'll say, Nick, it was such a it's such a privilege to work on that roadmap, and I'm I'm you know I'm so thankful to be able to work with you and others on that. It was it was it was really, it's it's wonderful to be able to work on something that you, you can see could have such a great impact on robotics in, in Australia. And a big thank you to Suke for, you know, championing that and inviting us all to be a part of that. Um, she's doing some amazing work. I don't know where she gets all her energy quite quite yeah. honestly. She's just effervescent. Um, yeah, I think so. The service sector, I think. <laughs> Our chapter within the on the roadmap was it was quite huge. When you think about services, it's just a it's everything. You know, in this in the roadmap, we did have a sector on healthcare, but you know, services also covers off on healthcare. It covers mm-hmm. up on elderly care, children care, um, education, retail, hospitality, construction, like anything that is is in that service environment. So the the spectrum of it was really, really, really broad. Um, And what I found really heartening though, is there's some really lovely examples of how we've grown even in the last couple of years since the first roadmap was released and we were kind of doing a reflective look at, you know, what's happened since. So there is lots of great stuff happening in Australia. And I think the other thing that layered over the top of what we were talking about at the end of the last year even was you know how how now covid has the opportunity and i and i hate to use opportunity and covid in the same yeah. sentence um but when you think about um what how robotics can help with covid and the pandemic recovery or the new way in which we we work and the way in which we structure our workforces and how we provide services um, whether that is transport systems or whether it's a hospitality restaurant somewhere, um, there's lots of opportunities for robots to play a really critical role in how we're delivering services now. And that's because they will minimise risks around human human touch. In where, and so I think it's advancing maybe the uptake. There's opportunity for advanced uptake. Um, I think what it's going to take, though, is um, us all still having a collective approach to what we do. I think, you know, the thing I saw that came through really strongly across all the sectors is that so many people are doing great work, but it's, it seems to be very siloed. We've never been good at sharing our learned experiences. Um, and I think even working on the roadmap together, I think we've just learned so much from each other. And I'm hoping that these new networks and organizations around robotics and automation that are opening up are really championing the opportunities that robotics has and maybe changing the landscape a little bit where we move away from that push here's some robots they do wonderful things to oh god goodness what how how can i embed these and i can see the value now how can i embed these this these robotics well and and, and automate some processes where it makes sense 
So, yeah. yeah, look, I agree with you about the highlighting our wonderful community because certainly um, there, there's some amazing work being done in Australia. And, and the more I, I find podcast um, guests that I look at, I go, oh, look, did you know about these wonderful people? And did you have you seen these people? <laughs> and it's such a lovely community to be involved in, though, because everyone wants to chat to each other and learn from each other and support each other. And so, well... In, um, in my world, maybe like maybe if you're selling robots, you're a bit more competitive, but at the same time. Uh, look, you know, I'm, I always say to people, I don't do any hard selling. I, I'm in such a niche of robotics that if you if you want to know about it, you will find me. And um, you'll if you want to buy it, then you buy it. I, it's not like a, a, something I can go and knock on people's door and say, how oh, do you want this robot? Like, it just doesn't work that way. So because the adoption rate is such that it's a problem that they're trying to solve and hence they will find me. So... Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it may not be for everybody, you know, it's sort of like you have a certain range that do what they do really, really well. So yeah. exactly. So an understanding of um, service social robots and how they interact with humans. Do you want to talk about this a little bit? Yeah. So it's interesting. I, when I, I'm going to be very academic here. When we do academic talk, we kind of we have these names for the similar thing. And so we call what is also termed social robots, service robots um, as service robots, because more broadly, so I'll talk to them about as service robots. Yeah, and as I said at the start, I think I'm really interested in how um, they now interface with humans. And so, um, so what we have in our terminology now in academia is this human robotics inter interactions. So we have HRI, I mean, this whole broadening out field of understandings around HRI. Um, and so the things that we're really interested in looking at is everything from attitudes, like um, people's attitudes towards ro robots, their acceptance of robotics, um, their use of robotics, um, and then what are some of the differences between how they might interact with them. Um, and there is a the, the amount of research being done in robotics around the world is just in, incredible at the moment. And I'm just so excited. You can't even keep up. Like once you think you've got a, an experiment worked out, you think, oh, no one knows this yet. And then all of a sudden there's papers around it, so, so, which is great. It's annoying, but great at the same time. Um, but overall, we can see like um, and I, that attitudes are over overarchingly positive from humans working with with robots. I think the one stickler we see around people's attitudes being positive is really understanding what the role of the robot is. So it's getting back to, well, what, why is this robot here? What is its purpose? And once I understand its purpose, then I know what, you know, how I can best interact with it and what its capabilities are. Um, and I think, so we know, and we know a lot from a customer space. What's interesting is we don't know a lot yet about workers' perceptions around working alongside a robot. And so some of the research we're doing right now, which is gonna to have to be a little bit longitudinal because I think initially there's a bit of novelty about a robot being in an organization or in a space and, and some annoyance and, and there's some apprehension because you're like, well, why is this robot here? Is it because they're trialing them to take over my role? And then how do I fit into this? So then there's role dynamics. Um, and that's what we've seen initially around the research we've been doing. Um, what, we're, what, what we're wanting to see further on is how are robots kind of then perceived as you, as you embed them further and further into the organization? Do we start becoming more friendly with the robot? Do we start to not care about the robot so much? How are, you know, how are they sort of indoctrinated into organizations and how does that work? 
And I think um, one of the key things that robots are constantly linked to, or the one of the big questions is how do robots impact well-being in society? And that's such a layered question. Like it's kind of like, um, okay, how do how do humans um, <laughs> impact yeah. well-being in society? Um, uh, and well-being, when we talk about that, is okay. So, are they here for the good? Um, will they have negative consequences about how we go back to maybe treating robots like servants? And so then we're going back to a subservient way of, of being. Um, and these are all big questions yet that we don't really know the answers to. Um, but we want to be able to we want to be able to help shape people's behaviours too to them and kind of keep them abreast of how how to assimilate well and how to live alongside robots and, and utilize them well within organizations so yeah. yeah i think you're you're quite right and as you said you know you just think you, you're releasing a paper then somewhere else in the world because yeah. this is topical across all countries that are dealing with these robots because um traditionally robots were designed not to work with people they would be doing their own thing yeah. so this is a yeah, this is a completely new space in it. And, um, you know, just to your point of people getting attached to their robots, um, I'm not sure if you know of the, the robot in, in America, Scooby-Doo, that was working as a soldier and he was getting, um, he was sniffing out bombs, so to speak, if you want to just call it that. And on his 17th mission was blown up and his handler was actually distraught. And um, Sue actually told me about this in a presentation. I'm telling everyone that it's actually available on YouTube to look at. And um, I was on another chat with um, people designing robots to go to um, Mars and all the work they've done in this. And, you know, they, they actually sound they were actually sounding quite stressed to go like they spent all this time on this robot they've actually got quite attached to it yeah. and the possibility is well it, it can go silent and they don't know what's happened to it absolutely and this is actually one of the the issues that we have with some of the research that we do is that we trial and test these robots in different situations and i've heard of situations where they've trialed it even as a concierge in a hospital where the staff got so attached to it and, they, and it was for a trial period and you know and some of a lot of our research studies are not that you've actually bought the robot and you can leave the robot there. You've kind of, you're sort of loaning it out or you're using it for that test. And then people get so attached to it that they're kind of like, it's like a member of staff has been fired or, or lost or, or passed on and it's just devastating for them. So there's even a grief process of like, how do you yeah. like give, let people get go of the robot or think of a way in which, you know, you can embed, get another robot or embed robots um, more holistically into the setting, so. Well, it's interesting because first up is the fear factor of people and going like, what's this robot doing here? I think the, the study you're talking about is the one with Anne Alvin up in um, Townsville, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so again, like uh, often I get asked with my robots is what do these robots do? And I go, listen, this robot is, this robot is just not smart enough to replace you. Like, I mean, if it was, then, then you deserve to lose your job. I'm being yeah. a bit facetious there because these robots just aren't that smart. Um, no, no. So it is an education process. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's another misconception about robots is that they're, you know, the robots that we kind of get alerted to on media and a bit sensationalized about this robot now it can do this. And there is some great advancements in robotics and humanoid robotics in particular, but they're not widespread. You're not going to run into those robots in natural settings for quite a, quite a long time. There's, um, you know, there's so many layers of protection and risk and responsibility that goes around those kind of robots being um, left autonomously in those environments. You know, most of the robots that you interact with 
uh, are, are semi-autonomous at the, at the most, meaning someone is kind of driving them in the background or there's people around to kind of ensure that the robot's doing what it's meant to be doing. And they're pulling from limited databases with you know limit, mo limited movements and even limited you know capacity to you know comprehend your maybe complex co uh, question or your anxiety state or anything like that so there is a long way to go you know? yeah i think i think part of the the disconnect that happens is when you see these videos of sophia on youtube and she's sitting in in, in a, a you know like this this interview and she's firing off these answers that that's very artificial like she's been programmed to actually someone's pushing a button in the background Sophia is not thinking up the stuff herself no no correct no a lot of that's rehearsed the, you know there's scripts in place that she's been practicing they've they've run her through probably interview scripts through AI and, and machine learning there she's absorbed a million and one interviews that have ever happened on tv so she has something something to go from basically so yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. an artificial uh, environment. So, yeah, absolutely. So, you've had a few publications around telehealth. Um, tell us what's happening in the space, especially with COVID. Yeah. yeah. Oh goodness, telehealth has just boomed. I tell mm. you, it's just you know, um, I I work with some really wonderful researchers here at UQ that have kind of have been doing telehealth since their PhD days, and so quite a, quite a number of decades, and. Um, been championing for this for so long and they've had some of the initial kind of telehealth structures and things in place old antiquated you know computers and um, that kind of stuff um, and so we've been so they've been sort of championing for telehealth to be an accepted practice within healthcare services for decades we have COVID and then all of a sudden it's like every man and his dog is, is doing telehealth and all of a sudden it's like oh all of these system barriers are broken down within health systems to allow this to happen I sound a bit, um, <laughs> I sound a bit dated about it, but I'm, like, I'm really, really happy. It's fantastic. Um, and it's so there's just uh, so much opportunity in this space right now. I mean, so now, you know, consultations through telehealth are accounted for, you know, for as a consultation um, so we can get Medibank, uh, Medicare rebates back on, on them. Um, the what's, what's interesting, though, with any technology uptake um, really quickly is that, what, what that means is that nearly every every type of technology used to deliver this healthcare service now is called telehealth. And so anything from you just getting on the phone and calling your doctor to quickly have a chat and you might have known your doctor for years is called telehealth now. And I'm like, well, no, that's just a phone chat. And yes, it is a form of telehealth, but it's not exactly telehealth. So people, people now have a broad range of experiences across telehealth that not necessarily may be the ideal model for how telehealth works. So it's it's, it's, it's now an opportunity for us to kind of really start to bring back some of this um, really rigorous research we've been doing over the years to kind of say, if you're going to do it well, this is how you really do it. Um, because coming out of COVID, you know, with any technology, it's going to be like, well, you use all this technology really quickly. You know, you could see how it maybe didn't work for you. Let's, let's go back and see how you could have done it better, given the time to implement it properly and to embed it properly and ensure that it's, it's working well for you. Um, but at the same time, really exciting about the fact that, you know, uh, these kinds of opportunities are available to people so we can, act, we can get people access to healthcare and things like that um, who, are, who are remote or unable to actually access services previously. So, Look, I agree with you. A slightly jaded because, I mean, there's been, there have been people that have been promoting this for decades. As you say, this is the way to go forward. I think the only the risk 
that just as a consumer, it immediately highlights to me is that if you don't actually know your doctor and he's never actually physically seen you and now you've got this telehealth telephone call, I do think it leaves it open for all sorts of maybe misdiagnoses because it's a quick telephone call. Um, Look, I'm speculating here, but I'm just being the devil's advocate. Yeah, because the ideal telehealth Mm. setup is something like what we see on Zoom, right? It's actually where you can physically see me and I can see you because there's a lot of cues that happen in a consultation where not someone's going to tell you straight away exactly everything that's wrong with them and they might not have thought of it at the time but if you can see that someone's thinking you'll go it looked like there was something else maybe did you have you have you had headaches you look like you said that you did but now you don't is that right so you're not you haven't got any personal cues to go off if it's just on a phone call yeah. um so it, the ideal telehealth happens still in this kind of zoom world where you can physically see someone i mean it's even better if you have someone at the other at the patient's end who can actually maybe even comment on something else or you know another have a nurse or someone at that end that is even qualified so it's not the end or it's not the actual answer to healthcare it's a nice way of accessing healthcare when you can when you need to um but it's not gonna i I don't see how telehealth is going to replace in-person consultations or how healthcare is predominantly going to need to be delivered um, but it opens up opportunities for those instances where it makes sense for me not to have to be in the room you know with my doctor um, because I'm getting a top-up or I'm just getting a, a quick yeah. kind of update on on how I'm progressing with my tre- with my treatment so yeah. yeah I agree with you look if it's a quick um, I'm just replacing a script or I need a new script please oh, oh. or just like a quick question that's the most annoying thing to do with doctors really isn't go and get a yeah. script you send it waiting in the waiting room for two hours getting sick yeah. for a script for something that's just ongoing so yeah yeah that's actually ridiculous they should make like that should just be if you want a script here fill this form in and if i need to see you, i'll let you know otherwise i'm going to replace it yeah so and your robot out to do that part of your intro exactly yeah tick 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 yeah <laughs> my useful little robot get my script please <laughs> So you part of something called the Sisterhood. Tell me about this organization. Oh, it's a lovely little organization. I mean, I shouldn't say little, it's growing rapidly by the day. I think um, it's a wonderful organization. Um, run, it came it came out of advertising agencies, but it's broadened out now to women who are young. It's it's a mentorship program for young women who are in marketing and are advertising and wanting to just know what's next and where to go from here. Like so many spaces in business and just, I guess, anywhere really in the world, you don't really know how to navigate this, this world from, well, I know all of this knowledge um, and how do I now navigate into the world and and, uh, have an impact and have a place and what is this thing called marketing and what is this thing called advertising and and how do I move, move into a career that works for me? And unfortunately, and I hate to say it, you know, women are still disadvantaged in a lot of ways into how we um, are seen in certain organisations and roles. And so the more that we support each other through that, the better. I think women also, we have this um, you know, imposter syndrome that we, we wear on our sleeve a lot more than men do. Men just seem to not care. They ask questions later, whereas women are asking all the questions first, making sure that it's okay. And I think the more that we have these kind of mentorship programs where we're fostering confidence really in, in young women to just go out there and, and try and, and, and see and, and, and to, to be confident in themselves, I think the better off we're going to be. So, yeah, it's a really nice program. So, so is this something that, um, that people have to pay for or is this a, like how does it work? 
No, it's a non-paid for program. It's um, so it's 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 wonderful. I think it's it's supported. Like I think they're giving funding for it through different organisations and philanthropic organisations. Um, it's it's a competitive though, and I think that's that's the, that's a good thing in some ways because I think even when going through a competitive process makes you question why you're doing something and you start that mentorship program process even if you're not sort of awarded into the program but it's it runs every year so you, you're with your mentor for for a year and I was a mentor um just last year and I'll be going on to do that again and yeah so yeah it's a nice opportunity it was interesting through COVID to really be um to mentor someone because these poor these poor young generation at the moment you know they're coming out of you know university and that, you know, the normal trajectory for high performing people is that you're kind of, okay, you've done it, you know all this stuff, now you've got to go and get that job um, and then you get the job and then maybe after you might go traveling or at least you'll have an income and then you know you're going to buy a car and you're going to buy a unit and, you know, so that's kind of all wrapped up in this, this, this part of, you know, sort of your execution through life and COVID hit and there wasn't roles and there wasn't that linear pathway anymore and so a lot of the mentoring I, I think I did last year was really about don't worry about that so much. Don't worry about the linearity of life, because I think even that's what I my advice would be anyway, is like don't necessarily feel like you've got to be linear and and these expect filling these expectations. What you're better going to be served is actually spending some time understanding you and what makes you happy, because then eventually you'll choose a role or you'll you'll welcome yourself to opportunities that kind of map onto you as an individual more than you trying to force yourself into a role and then figuring out two years later, it's, it's not what you want because it's, you know, it's too many hours or too hard or you just don't like it. It doesn't fit you in your values. So I think the more that young people find out who they are and um, what their values are and what makes them happy, what, what makes them passionate yeah, that makes them, gives them better opportunities for good choices. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very sound advice. I mean, we're going on the assumption that the older generation actually have got it all figured out as well. Oh, and we've oh, got oh. all. <laughs> Please don't do what I do. Like, I can, I'll give you advice for me as a younger me, but I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up either. So, like, it's okay. <laughs> That's so funny, yeah. You, you just sound like a typical parent. Listen, just do what I say. Don't do what I do. <laughs> I think we all still have imposter syndrome, quite honestly. So you learn to live with it and actually don't don't relay that you've got imposter syndrome to, to other people. <laughs> you know, this is such yeah. an interesting topic because I, um, I, I've listened to a couple of talks recently where um, guys actually do suffer from imposter syndrome and they... Yeah, and it's... it's um, and these are highly uh, talented individuals. So I think it all boils down to, I had a chat to the guy that works for me because um, I touched on this with another guest about imposter syndrome. And um, he said to me, oh, he suffers from it. And he's got a master's degree in me mechatronics and robotics. So I'm going, what have you got to suffer about? Like, I don't get this. It's so funny because people often subscribe, you know, uh, well, you're highly intelligent, so you should, you wouldn't have imposter syndrome. But I think it's it's an oxymoron, quite honestly, because if you're in academia, you realise how much you don't actually know. Because like we look at, I look at the amount of articles that are coming through just in my domain, let alone every other domain, and I'm going, oh my god, I'm this tiny little little speck in amongst this wealth of information. Um, so I think we even get more imposter syndrome because we're like, oh goodness, it's just where is my contribution here? Um, but you know. 
saying that we we all have a contribution no matter what we're doing we have a contribution and we know our stuff and it's just yeah backing yourself around that it's funny I'm the I'm the MBA director here at UQ and I welcomed our new MBAs on just Saturday we're here all day with them at their orientation and I spent a bit of time talking to them about imposter syndrome because you know these are executives walking into the room and I swear nearly all of them in that first classroom sit there and go oh my god that person is way smarter than I am or like oh god what am I doing here like and so I said you will feel this I swear you'll feel this and I show them actual um, emails that I've gotten previously from students saying yeah my first one I nearly just walked down and went I can't do this I'm not supposed to be here I'm sorry like you guys are way more intelligent than I am I said you just got to push through that and just even if you think your question's dumb, it's probably not. It's probably what everyone else is thinking, but they may be glossing or they may be bolstering or they, you know, um, it'll, it'll normalize everything for you. So, yeah. Yeah, look, I think my starting supposition is it's guaranteed there's smarter people in the room and I just go from there. I'm oh, there to okay. learn. That's yep. definite. Like it's, it's not even like it's a given for me and I go, right, let me see what I can learn today. And I think the sooner you turn that around and look at that, that as an opportunity, mm. is that if you think there's smarter people in the room, go and talk to them. Get, yeah. Understand what they know. Like, get ask them questions. Because um, everyone loves to be asked questions too, and particularly smart people. They'll love to talk to you about it all day long. So, yeah. like, it's an opportunity, right? So. <laughs> so, the question, do you have a mentor? Uh, interesting, because I always got asked this question, and I think I've never had... I've gone through a couple of mentor arrangements um, at different times in academia, um, but I had a very, very lovely supervisor and I changed supervisors. And so he stayed a very good friend of mine and I've got a, a painting on the wall that he gave me at some stage. And he just, and we never thought of it as a mentor arrangement. He was the person who tapped me on the shoulder to do that project and that's why I got into academia actually. So um, I had him for a, a while and I still do think of him as a mentor and think I always stop myself and go, oh, what would Tony do in this situation? Like, hey, I need to be kind and be a bit more structured in this, you know? So I think your know, mentorship, you know, you can have very formal ways of doing it, but I think when you sit and you reflect and you go, who's had an influence on me or who have I kind of gotten inspiration from and that can be a broad range of people for broad different things like I need inspiration to go for a run it hasn't happened recently so I need a mentor in that space if anyone's keen to hook me up uh, but you know you can think about people that you've come across in a, in a space and go right that person impressed me or that that's in, that's inspired me and it's kind of um chatting to them if you can and if you have the opportunity to spend time with them do that um and start when I when you start mentorship I always don't go well, don't run up to someone and go be a mentor um say hi can we have a coffee I'd love to chat to you for a while and then, and because mentorship has to evolve it's a relationship it's not it's not a forced thing mentorship isn't forced it's actually um going on a journey with someone and being alongside them so yeah, I agree with you. Um, I, I was uh, on a panel talking about mentors and I said, look, you know, it's it's a very personal thing. And, um, you know, I, I could have someone that's younger than me be a mentor, but I have to a, trust that this person's got my best interest at heart. And how would you know it unless you sit and speak to them? No, absolutely. And a lot of people, not so many, but, you know, there's people out there who do mentorship just to say that they do mentorship and they kind of give the same advice to everybody. And that doesn't really help you as an individual. I mean, you could read a book or watch a TED talk and get the same amount of inspiration or information for, about that particular thing. A mentor really is the person who walks along next to you 
and just sort of ask the right questions at the right time. It's not supposed to be, this is do, this is how you do things. It's actually, you know, so have you asked this question? They're, they're the support network that you go to and go, oh, this is all bad. <laughs> Help me. And they kind of give yeah. you support and go, off you go again. There you are. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so have you got any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with? Oh, I don't know whether I've left them with any thoughts. So I'm happy if they took anything. No, here's the imposter syndrome again. Um, <laughs> I'm going to beat it out of you. <laughs> I, don't know, I'm that. Um, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's, I think, you know, the more that we share information and knowledge is, is always been my catch cry. Like, the under, get to understand things, question things, um, share that knowledge with other people. Um, and that advances things like robotics or advances you know, how we treat each other, how we, you know, we look after each other, you know, it, it permeates throughout everything that we do. So share your knowledge, ask, ask questions. Brilliant. And if anyone wants to reach you, um, what's the best place? Yeah, well, I, you'll find me through the UQ Business School um, here, uh, through our pages there. So, um, I, and also just searching for MBA director at UQ. I have my own LinkedIn page as well. So, and that's where I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more. I'm not really on Twitter. I don't have time in my day for Twitter. So, so LinkedIn is a good place to, to hit me up. Yeah. Okay, great. So we'll get everyone listening to um, send an invite on LinkedIn. So do you connect with Nicole there. Nicole, thanks so much for your time. It's been such fun talking to you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, to the audience, um, please do uh, subscribe and, and leave some feedback. And I'll be back in another week's time. <laughs>